You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Daniel Baxter. He's currently 
to HIV specialist inter- and internist at William F. Ryan Community Health Center in New York City. Um, we're here to discuss many things, most importantly, his most recent book, um, which One Life at a Time, an American Doctor's Memoir of AIDS in Botswana. Having spent eight years in Botswana, this is sort of a part memoir, documentary, travelogue, reflection, and chronicle of Dr. Baxter's time on the ground in Botswana, what he learned from those, although he went to teach and to help others, will learn what he learned from them as well. Dr. Baxter, it's an honor to have you on tonight, and welcome. Thank you. Good evening. It's just, I'm, it's, as I said, it really is an honor, and those listening will see why it's an honor to have you on tonight. What you have done for so many people all over the world is astounding, and we're going to hear about it all tonight. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and your history and how you came to where you are today? Well, um, interestingly, my medical career, which started in the um, late 1970s after I got out of medical school, really uh, followed the trajectory or arc, if you will, of the HIV pandemic. And I remember when I was in Iowa in the 1980s and received reports about this strange new immune deficiency uh, disease that was killing people. I was uh, fascinated by it and interested in it, not so much because of the medical science, but because of the moral and ethical issues, because um, the way HIV-infected people were treated like lepers. I was just appalled by this. And ultimately, I moved to New York City in 1992 to work in a hole-in-the-wall AIDS uh, hospital, St. Clair's Hospital in Hell's Kitchen. And there I really um, realized that this was, if you will, my calling. In fact, I wrote my first book about it, The Least of These, My Brethren, A Doctor's Story of Hope and Miracles on an Inner-City AIDS Ward back in 1997. After a brief sojourn at the Ryan Center as medical director, uh, in um, late 2002, I went to Botswana uh, to help out with their new HIV-AIDS treatment program, which really was the first public health experiment on the continent. And I went there thinking that I knew all of the answers, and soon after I got there, I had several patient catastrophes that showed me that I didn't have the answers. I didn't even know the questions to ask. But because of the wonderful forgiveness of the people there and the beauty of Botswana, I was able to soldier on, and I uh, really had some very life-changing experiences there. When you said that you found your calling um, prior to that in New York City. Um, at that point, and, and if you could even... in sort of instruct all of us or educate us as to the timeline when when AIDS and HIV sort of reared its ugly head and then sort of when, what was the timeline with that? Well, sure. Um, by the uh, late 1980s, um, it was devastating uh, the gay community and also the community of people who uh, uh, shot up with drugs. And um, when I started out at St. Clair's Hospital in 1992, AIDS was truly fearsome. There were no uh, good treatments. Um, And um, I took care of a lot of very sick people, and we were able to nurse them along for a while until they eventually died from AIDS. Can you hear us, Dr. Doctor? I I beg your pardon? We made a little technical difficulty. 
Uh-oh. Sorry, folks. Technical difficulties. Please stand by. I'm going to play the introduction song again until we get uh, Kathleen back on the air. Please stand by. And here we are. Hey, Preston? Yes, you're back on now. You're back on the air. Sorry about that. We're back on. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Baxter, I'm sorry about that. We had a little technical <laughs> difficulty. But you were mm-hmm. just explaining, if you, if you wouldn't mind going back a little bit again, about sort of when AIDS and HIV came sort of was recognized for the first time and sort of the evolution with what transpired with that as far as the medical treatment and, and what medical treatment, if any, there was. Right. Um, it was uh, in the 1980s when it really uh, hit the news, you know, with Rock Hudson dying of AIDS and uh, the devastation in the uh, gay community and also in the community of uh, IV drug users. And, um, yeah, it was devastating. I mean, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people were dying in the major cities of this severe immune deficiency. And when I started at St. Clair's in 1992, we really had no effective treatments. We could just treat the serious infections and to nurse the patient along. Uh, but ultimately, AIDS always won. But in 1996, at the Vancouver AIDS Conference, they announced the new drugs, the so-called cocktail of HIV drugs, that basically allowed people to get out of their beds and walk. And in a way, death took a holiday through the late 1990s on. And we had wonderful treatments here. Initially, they had various side effects, but new drugs uh, came on the scene, and HIV was a chronic treatable problem. But by 2000, we realized that the continent of Africa, where HIV originated, the continent of Africa was uh, facing incredible devastation. Uh, the possibility of millions and millions of uh, men, women, and children and babies dying from HIV. And the West, led by the United States, began some major initiatives there. And I remember the Durban AIDS Conference in 2000 in Durban, South Africa. There was question as to whether or not we could even do this because we were talking about a scaling up of major treatment programs. And Botswana was the first country on the continent to um, have a national treatment program, and it took a lot of courage on the part of the political leadership there. And so they took a chance on Bill Gates and the Merck Foundation providing uh, the drugs and the expertise. And um, the result has been, and I only deserve a very, 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 very small amount of the, um, uh, of the credit, the result has been that Botswana has saved hundreds of thousands of people from HIV. And neighboring African countries, especially South Africa, also have embarked on their own treatment programs. In fact, South Africa has the largest treatment program in the world. So um, I have been able to witness in my career uh, the progression of HIV being an unknown, terrifying, mysterious illness to being a, a, a disease that killed people ultimately to 
ultimately becoming a chronic treatable disease. And I have also been fortunate enough to see how it unfolded on the African continent as well. Now, I read some, and I don't know if this is still the statistic, that 24% of the population was living with HIV. Is that a current statistic? Was that something in yeah, prior it's about, Yeah, it's about that same amount. I saw a recent statistic. And um, uh, the way statistics work, if someone is HIV infected and is on treatment and lives and doesn't die, then the proportion of people that are HIV positive will increase simply because people are living longer and not dying off um, soon after they are diagnosed with AIDS. So, yes, it's still a problem there. Um, it's being addressed, I think, very vigorously. In fact, I was just reading an article this afternoon that many African countries, including Botswana, are embarking on so-called pre-exposure prophylaxis, giving uninfected people a pill a day to keep them from becoming HIV-infected. So it's really quite remarkable what we've seen, and uh, it really um, uh, it really is very heartening to see uh, people get better and lead normal, productive lives. Is, is, now, this may be a very dumb question. Is the prophylactic almost like a vaccine in a sense where you're, you're like you wouldn't, if you were exposed to it, you could avoid con um, contracting it? Yeah, it's not a vaccine. It's one of the uh, HIV medicines, one of the antiretroviral medic medications. And it really is an important um, uh, development, uh, especially among men who have sex with men here in the United States. It's underutilized. The Centers for Disease Control uh, estimates that 1.2 million people in America are at greatly increased risk for uh, becoming HIV infected, but only 10% of um, that population is currently on pre-exposure prophylaxis. So yeah, we've evolved from the point, from the uh, period when HIV was a death sentence to where you can either prevent it by taking a pill a day, or if you are infected, right. you can take medications and lead a normal life. Is it approved? Is the drug approved so everyone would have access to it? Oh, yes. Yes, it's a pre-exposure prophylaxis, or uh, put shortly, PrEP, is really the standard of care now. And um, certainly sure. if anyone is at high risk for HIV infection, he or she should talk to their doctor about it. That's unbelievable. I never knew that. And I don't know how this could help, but if a mother is infected, is there any way to help the fetus? I, I don't know if that's even possible, but. Oh, no, yes, absolutely. That's, you know, that was one of the first rays of hope. Uh, in um, the early 1990s, we found that uh, giving HIV-infected pregnant uh, mothers AZT um, markedly decreased the, the, the rate of HIV infection to the baby. Nowadays, a pregnant HIV-infected uh, woman who takes HIV medications and suppresses the virus has practically a zero chance, zero percentage wow. chance of transmitting it to uh, her baby. It's unbelievable. And and I have, to, I have to disagree with something you said earlier when you have a very, very, very slight <laughs> part in this whole thing, because I disagree with that very much. I think you have a very, very big part in the advances and what just the help and the care you've given to people. And specifically, not just here, I mean, 
many continents. But tell us a little bit about when you went to Botswana, what went into that decision and, and sort of what was going through your head? You said like sort of, um, you sort of went with a different understanding about your trip there than when you left to come home. And I'm Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, my book is uh, a chronicle of the evolution that I went through. And I might add, it is not all doom and gloom. There's There are a lot of humorous sections. It's sort of a documentary, a travelogue. I might add parenthetically that Botswana is a country where on my driver's license application in 2003, one of the questions I was asked was, are you or you ha- or have you ever been an imbecile? So, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's sort of like an alternative universe. But I went there, um, I'll confess, in fact, that this is in the book, I had a withering contempt for what at the time I regarded as demanding, entitled, privileged American patients who I felt their suffering was nothing compared to the suffering uh, in Botswana. And, and I don't mean to interrupt was this before you went? Is that part of the reason you went? Or was that when you were in... Yeah, that was part of the reason I went. I had always wanted to work in the developing country. But I went there thinking that I had all the answers. And as I said, I had two patient catastrophes early on, and I outlined those in the book that were really heartbreaking. And I was just totally deconstructed. But, you know, Africa has time and space. And it allowed me to uh, basically continue on and to persevere. And I learned a lot more about myself. I also learned ultimately, and this sounds trite, but I ultimately finally learned that everyone's suffering is the same. That the suffering of the patient dying of AIDS in a very dysfunctional, decrepit hospital in uh, Botswana that's the same as the suffering as my patients that I see here day in and day out at the Ryan Center. Uh-huh. So um, it was a personal journey. And, you know, as I would tell the medical students and residents um, on my team that I headed up at the main referral hospital in Botswana, you really need to reach the state of grace in your medical career where you feel you are taking away more from your patient and learning more about your uh, yourself than you're ever able to give them. Um, one of the major insights I had, and it again sounds trite, but I realized that the only person I can ever save is myself, and that's if I'm lucky. And all that I can do as a doctor is give my patients precious extra time for them to save themselves, if indeed that's necessary. I found something so interesting, too, um, when you talked about being there and this just disease-ridden and, and poverty-stricken and just unfathomable conditions that they were living in, and yet there was a common theme uh, spoken often, but God is good. Right, right. And I mean, so many times I would um, uh, have a patient that was uh, having all sorts of serious problems, um, you know, that uh, their partner was going to kick them out of the house because they became HIV infected. But they would always end, almost always end, with an optimistic, but God is good. 
and that would lift me up as well because I realized that um, there's a lot more to, to medicine in general and HIV in particular than just uh, giving drugs. Um, it involves uh, giving the patient hope, uh, giving them good information. But yes, the spirituality of the people in Botswana um, is very deep and um, certainly has carried a lot of people along in very, very difficult times there. When you were saying about being a doctor and how much more it's just giving the medicine, and I would think, you know, with something like HIV and AIDS, the stigma that was attached to it for so long, you know, was another thing. Just to, to These people have been through so much on top of stigmatized exactly. and, and crucified, you know, whatever it was or whatever, you know, it was just such an unfair boulder put on top of everything else. And I, how did you deal with that sometimes? Well, as you know, there still is guilt and shame and stigma associated with HIV infection, although um, the, the fear and paranoia and hysteria have largely been diffused by the very effective long-term treatments we have. But uh, when I went to Botswana, many people would soon, many of them would sooner die than be HIV and t uh, tested. I mean, really? yes, a sick joke was... You know, the way to stay HIV negative in Botswana was not to be tested. Oh. And we would have very, very seriously ill people in the hospital. And, you know, we had to get permission to do an HIV test on them. And they would adamantly refuse and they would sooner die than be HIV tested. But, you know, one of the things that I learned even back in um, the 19, early 1990s when I was on my AIDS ward here in New York City is that at the end of the day, all of us are HIV positive, regardless of what the result of our HIV test comes back. By that I mean we're all on the slippery sliding slope to the grave. Some of yeah. us more rapidly, some of us more leisurely than others. And if people just understood that this anonymous virus, it's just um, another disease that we need to approach, we need to approach compassionately. Now, stigma and shame in Botswana and also in the United States uh, caused a lot of people to slip through the cracks and to die when they otherwise could have been treated. When you said that many um, refused to be tested, was that because they didn't, it's almost like knowing was worse because they didn't have hope for a cure, or was the stigma sort of a part of that there as well? It was just stigma in general. I mean, they knew that these treatments were uh, effective, but um, there was, you know, when we came to Botswana and to other African countries with all of our good intentions and our life-saving drugs, we also brought along stigma because the, we, we emphasize confidentiality to the nth degree. Now, yes, of course, you don't discuss another patient's diagnosis with other people. I mean, it is confidential. But um, certainly the Setswana, that's the language in Botswana, the Setswana term for confidential implied something to be ashamed of. And, um, yeah, I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, and it it um, it was very difficult to overcome, and still is even today. But it's much less so now that we have good treatments, and countries like Botswana have very viable uh, HIV treatment programs. Are they since that time, since two thousand two, when you went? Are they more likely now to have the testing done? I mean, the stigma may still exist, but. Are they more open about having the testing done, understanding that it's less of a stigma, there is a cure? Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, in fact, um, we, um, again, I remember the days in the United States when uh, you would say to a patient, I want to test you for HIV, and there would be this long, laborious discussion with the patient about what the implications of a positive test would be, And then the patient would have to sign uh, a consent form before you could even draw the blood. I mean, you know, that was the time when not even God knew what your HIV status was. It was we played played confidentiality up so much. And in Botswana, when I first got there and I would work in the clinics, the nurses and social workers would, when a patient would come in to be tested, they would have this long 15 or 20 minute uh, discussion with the patient describing all of the various ramifications of being tested. And, you know, it would really take a hearty soul to go ahead and after this long yes. discussion to, you know, very solemnly delivered to go ahead and be tested, let alone to come back in two weeks to find out the result. And so the government of Botswana, very correctly, they said, you know, this is creating an impediment, an obstruction for people to get tested. So what we're going to do is called opt-out testing. We're going to say to the patient in the clinic, I'd like to get an HIV test on you. And unless the patient screams bloody murder and says no, which means opts out, you would get the HIV test on them. And I remember, and I've, I read about this in my book, I remember soon after this was announced um, in Botswana, there was an international AIDS conference, and, oh, Botswana was raked over the coals by all of the you know, politically correct advocates in the West as if they were forcing people to be tested against their will. And one of the doctors, I remember... Uh, Dr. Ntwapi Ntwapi, who was involved in the treatment program, his only response was a very quick, it works for us. <laughs> and then a year or so later, a year or so later, the August United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention adopted the same policy, <laughs> which we have now. I mean, you say to the patient, I want to get an HIV test on you, and, you know, you can't force them against their will, and unless they opt out, you go ahead and get it. So in a way, Botswana was very much, in terms of testing, uh, way ahead of the curve of uh, us here in the United States. I would think it would take a little bit of the fear away because it's the norm, almost. You know, so if you're presented with something that everybody's doing, it's a natural, normal thing to have done. It probably, I don't know, caused less fear than signing on to something you weren't as sure about. Perhaps. Yeah, in fact, in fact um, when they announced this opt-out testing policy, and the country had, oh, a dozen or so testing centers where you would go in and be tested. When they announced this, you know, in the 
the radio, TV, and newspapers, you know, the bats want to have a very strong sense of, of what the nation. They refer to the country as the nation. And they swamped the testing centers because they thought that it was the patriotic thing to do. So, um, yeah, you see in Botswana, HIV has always been a community or a family affair. And mm-hmm. yes, you don't tell people, uh, other patients, uh, HIV status. But um, interestingly, once people were diagnosed with HIV, they became far more open about it in many cases. Now, yes, especially the women had to uh, many times uh, were afraid to tell their partners because they were afraid of being beaten up or kicked out of the house. But there was really a sense of family and a sense of community when it came to uh, the HIV crisis there. With the amount of positive testing that was coming back at the time, um, would there have been enough treatment available for the numbers that were coming in? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And uh, as I write in my book, um, you know, when I um, was leaving Botswana, the big question is should Botswana and other countries be judged by the lives saved or the lives Mm -hmm. lost? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not an expose, it's not muckraking or anything like that, but my book does describe how in the early years of the uh, Botswana National Treatment Program, a lot of people fell through the cracks because of bureaucratic inefficiency, inertia, um, not having enough uh, trained staff. There would be what they called stockouts of HIV medicines due to bureaucratic um, uh, incompetency. And so I guess it was the question was the glass three quarters full or a quarter empty. And even when I went to Botswana for six years and then I came back from uh, 2009 to 2013 here at the Ryan Center, and then I went back in 2013 for two years to work in the medical school. I mean, I was essentially, I just was a, an attending specialist physician team leading up teams of uh, residents and medical students at the hospital. And when I got there in mid-2013, I thought, oh, you know, um, I'll see only a few rare cases of AIDS because, you know, the country then had over 100,000 people, over 90% of those that needed to be on treatment, on treatment. But, oh, no, the hospitals were still full of patients that either didn't get tested or they got tested and fell through the cracks and weren't properly wow. referred to the uh, HIV clinics, and they had you know, serious complications uh, of AIDS. So it was messy. It was messy to start, but the country deserves immense credit for taking the risk because, as mm-hmm. I said, back in 2001, 2002, when they started up the treatment program, they really didn't know if um, you know if it was going to work, and there were also various questions about what they called sustainability. Namely, um, the West has helped us out, but will they, in the coming years, cut back, sort of mm-hmm. pull the rug out from under us and such? And although there have been cuts in um, uh, Western funding for African AIDS treatment. Um, there still is money that's being uh, poured into uh, into this effort. 
And for those of you joining us, um, we're with Dr. Daniel Baxter, uh, currently um, the NHIV specialist and internist at William S. Bryan Community Health Center in New York City. But what we're discussing was his uh, eight-year stint in Botswana and his most recent book, One Life at a Time, an American Doctor's Memoir of AIDS in Botswana. And just the phenomena and the the progression of HIV and AIDS in the United States to Botswana and sort of how stigma occurs everywhere and how <laughs> pain and suffering occurs everywhere and sort of the similarities that follow regardless of where you are when you're in, in undergoing this disease. It's all a very, very similar and horrific experience. And Dr. Baxter, I, I have a question when you just um, said that he'd been there for eight years. You came back to New York and then you went back to Botswana in 2013 to teach at the medical school. Mm-hmm. and. Were there many doctors who were interested now in taking on that role? Um, you know, natives from Botswana, who, doctors who wanted to stay and help with HIV and AIDS, having seen you and, and all of your, you know, all the other doctors coming to help the country. Well, uh, initially when I was there in uh, 2002, uh, there was no medical school. I mean, on paper at the University of Botswana, there was a medical school, but they didn't have students. And so they sent um, uh, uh, you know, young uh, Botswana, after uh, they finished uh, secondary school and college, they sent them to medical schools across uh, the world, the United States, United Kingdom, also in mm-hmm. South Africa. And unfortunately, at that time, it was far more lucrative for these uh, newly trained doctors to just stay in the States or in the United Kingdom or in South right. Africa. Yeah, I do mention that there were two uh, young Botswana, uh, uh, Tendani Hailate and Ndwapi Ndwapi, who returned after they had training at George Washington University uh, Medical School and Residency uh, here in uh, the United States. So there were some heroes that returned. And um, in uh, 2014, when I was at the medical school, they graduated their first medical school class. Oh, they did? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm very optimistic. And you raise another important, touch on another important issue. The challenge facing a country like Botswana is to also address other serious medical problems. Uh, that afflict far more people than HIV, namely hypertension, diabetes, heart disease. Um, and when I was there um, uh, as an attending physician in the hospital, I saw lots of catastrophes and disasters that were not HIV-related uh, but were due to poorly controlled hypertension, diabetes out of control, uh, bad heart disease. And what had happened was that the country was mobilized to fight the HIV epidemic, which really was threatening the entire existence of the country, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And they were mobilized to fight HIV and really neglected, to be quite honest, some of these Mm -hmm. other more serious medical problems. So um, it's heartening to know that there are young doctors there that are also addressing these other medical illnesses uh, in addition to HIV. Um, 
it's funny. So as we said that you, your your course, you've gone back and forth, sort from Botswana for eight years, and back to the states, back to Botswana. And I have a question: When you were there over the eight, the course of eight years in two thousand two, and upon coming back into the United States, did you notice any changes to the HIV landscape? Um, in that that while you've been in Botswana had changed here, or was it pretty concurrent at the same? You know, what was going here was happening in Botswana at the same time. Well, it, it, it's interesting in terms of treatments. Um, the initial treatment regimens in Botswana were no longer the first-line treatment regimens here in the United States. But ultimately, and of course, the the regimens that were used in Botswana saved lives. I mean, tens of thousands, over 100,000 lives. But ultimately, Botswana has progressed to the point that now its first-line treatment for a newly infected HIV patient is exactly the same as it would be here in the United States. So those disparities in terms of treatment, and the disparities are primarily in terms of side effects of treatment, those disparities have uh, largely disappeared. And in your book, uh, there's mention of like certain, which happens I'm sure, you know, with, with experience, and I'm sure every single patient you were with meant something to you and you carry in your memory, you know, you carry on forever. But can you mention maybe a few patients or a few experiences that you had that really resonate with your time there? Oh, yeah. Um, there, there was one. I volunteered um, an afternoon a week at Holy Cross Hospice, which was um, run by the Anglican uh, Diocese there in the capital, Habarone. And I would see patients. And um, one day I, um, uh, a patient was brought in and her name was Precious. And Precious was found alone in her hovel in Old Milady, which was the slum in Habaroni. And the hospice staff saw that she needed help, and um, so they brought her to see me. And she had both tuberculosis and AIDS. TB was very, is very common, it's the most common uh, infection related to AIDS in Africa. And she looked very, very weak, very, very thin. She um, probably was about half her body weight. And, you know, she was teetering on the edge of the abyss. And, you know, uh, with the help of the hospice staff, I um, got her on medication. And, you know, I, I know that it sounds superstitious and such, but for some reason, even though she should have been just another AIDS patient, maybe it was her name, Precious, maybe the fact that she was totally alone and had no family, but I really, really, really wanted her to make it. And um, I was afraid that by wishing that she could make it, uh, somehow the indifferent fates would strike her down. Well, I'll, I'll I'll tip my cards and say it had a happy ending. Precious. Oh, really? Uh, yes, she she got better. Uh, we were able to discharge her uh, from hospice care. Um, <laughs> another patient I remember, her name was Eunice. She was also a hospice patient. Uh, but Eunice was in legal limbo because she was Zimbabwean, and uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Zimbabwe, of course, even now, but back then especially, was imploding because 
They had famines. The government there was basically starving the people. And we had a lot of illegal immigrants uh, from Zimbabwe in Botswana, and they were not entitled to government treatment in the government hospitals. And so Eunice, um, she had been a maid of, uh, of an elderly Canadian couple there, and she got sick, and they diagnosed her with AIDS. And the Canadian couple did take her to their doctor, and he started her on uh, HIV medicines, but of course she couldn't afford it. And so they basically dumped her at the hospice. And um, she had, you know, the hospice was paying for her treatment, and um, she was staying with friends in her church. The churches are very important in Botswana in terms of helping people with uh, AIDS. And so she came to me. They brought her to me one day um, because she needed a form filled out, so she an immigration form, so she could continue to stay in Botswana. Um, you know, she went back and forth to visit her family in Zimbabwe, and in the process, her... Um, immigration status she she had a residency permit she was lucky well she worked for uh canadians there and so she had a residency permit and she had been there legally but uh she let it expire she let it lapse and so she needed a new immigration form filled out in order for her to be able to stay in botswana and continue to get the hiv treatments that had nursed her back to health and so I remember very well the afternoon that the nurse uh, brought her in, and she was fine. She didn't say much of anything. And I had this immigration form for me to fill out. And some of the questions were, you know, apropos my driver's license question, <laughs> are you or have you ever been an imbecile? <laughs> Many of the questions said, is the applicant a moron? Is the applicant... Uh, an imbecile is the applicant a creason, all right? And you know that harkens back to the British uh, when they were uh, ruling Botswana. They had all these quaint terms. Of course, I could easily say, no, she's not a moron. She's not a, an imbecile. She's not a cretin. But at the bottom of the form was a very ominous question: Has the applicant ever tested positive for HIV? And there were two boxes. Yes or no. And beneath the boxes in bold print was, you know, a, a, a statement saying failure to answer these, uh, answer this question truthfully is punishable by the law. And so, yeah, this was what I called AIDS apartheid. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, if I checked no, um, they wouldn't give her an, an immigration um, uh, permit. They wouldn't extend her residency permit. If I checked yes, I would be lying. And, you know, doctors are supposed to be honest and truthful, aren't they? So I sat back, and I was just very annoyed because it had been a busy day in the hospital, and, you know, an airplane was droning its uh, landing approach into the airport, um, the birds were singing outside. My nurse was checking his messages on his cell phone. And, of course, Eunice was just sitting there basically, I think, clueless as to what was going on. And so I interrupted my reverie, and I ticked <laughs> off one of the two boxes and gave her the immigration form. And you'll have to read the book to find out <laughs> what happened. 
So, I'm on, I'm yeah. really, I'm on my seat right now. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, and, and there were many patients like her. Um, uh, I remember, um, and then I'll, I'll just finish this uh, very quickly, one of the nurses. Of course, you know, the nurses, many of them would be HIV infected. Many of the attendees of the um, HIV course that I taught over my years there, and I probably trained about 3,000 healthcare workers there, many of them were HIV infected as well. And so Mercy called me early one morning, Dr. Baxter, I need to see you. And I knew her. She was a very good person. She always was very kind to her patients. So I met her in my office first thing in the morning, and she was, you know, her face was just etched with worry. And she related to me how um, um, she had to take in her sister's three children. Her sister had died. I didn't have to ask what her sister died from. Right. And um, two of these children were sick. She knew she had to get them tested or else she would lose them. And she said, you know, I have a great pain in my heart. I mean, the vets want to, they're so, how to put it, the way they would phrase things, you know, like God is good. Well, Dr. Baxter, I have a great pain in my heart. And she related to me that she was pregnant and she knew that her partner would kick her and her children and her sister's children out because it would just be one more mouth to feed and he wouldn't uh, stand for it. And she said, I need to get an abortion. I don't want to, but I really don't see any way out. And in Botswana, abortion was illegal, totally illegal. And I didn't really know whether or not referring someone for an abortion was also, um, could get could get me thrown in the clink. Right. So I called a doctor friend of mine, uh, who I also write about glowingly in the book in a section, um, and she told me about various places right over the border in South Africa um, where she could get an abortion. It would cost about, oh, around 900 pulo, which back then was, um, oh, I suppose around $100 or whatever. And so I gave this information to Mercy, and she was still, you know, gazing into this bottomless pit of despair and she said, uh, I said, you know, these are the, the people and this is what it costs. And um, she got up and very quietly said, yes, God is good, and started to walk out. Oh. And I suddenly, it's like, what is she saying? God is good, and her life is about ready to fall apart. And so I quickly ran after her. And as I write, I hated playing the role of the munificent white doctor bestowing largesse mm-hmm. on the natives. I hated that. But there was nothing left to do. I mean, 900 Pulo could feed her family for a couple of months. Right. And so, you know, I pulled out of my back pocket a wad of Pula. I think it was 11 or 1,200 Pula. And I gave it to her. I said, here, take this. If you need any more, let me know. And, you know, she thanked me, God bless you, and all that. And I always hated it when patients would say, God bless you, because I am the least worthy of blessing. But anyway, you know, I thought to myself, I really hated doing that, but God wasn't going to do her any favors. And then as I wrote, then again, maybe he just had. 
So, yep, there are lots of patient stories like that that resonate, and, you know, they were real. When you, you said a little prior, a, a little bit ago in the interview, that leaving you thought there was this big difference between, you know, AIDS and HIV patients that you would experience in the United States as opposed to those in Botswana. And you just relayed just unbearably emotional stories about these unbelievable people you met in Botswana. Are there a few in the United States that you remember as well that sort of tug a little bit at your heartstrings like Precious and, and the others? Almost every day here in the office. And although I'm an HIV specialist and each day I'll see one or two HIV patients, most of my patients uh, are general internal medicine patients. And, um, you know, as I said, there was an epiphany that occurred um, just in the last couple of months that I was there in uh, before I left in uh, mid-2015. And it involved a patient. Her name was Dolly. Uh, she was on my service in the hospital, and she was dying. She was comatose, 20 years old. And the only personal information I knew about her was that she was raped by her pastor at age 13. And there she was, dying. And I looked around in the ward, and I saw all of the other female patients that were also, you know, enduring incredible privations. And I thought, you know, if I knew just a little bit about each of them, like Dolly's rape, I certainly would have gone crazy. But then I realized that her suffering is no different than that of anyone else's. And I have a lot of frail elderly patients here, patients that, you know, quite frankly, during their lifetime have made some very bad decisions, and now they're living with the consequences. And I have the same feeling of compassion for them as I did for Dolly and other similarly dire patients. And, you know, that was the only way I was able to come back and practice medicine in America after my experience in Botswana. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I enjoy it. I mean, I'm, I'm no longer chief medical officer or medical director here. I'm just a, a front-line grunt, a primary care <laughs> And I'm quite, I'm quite happy uh, to assume that role. So, I don't think the word, I don't mean to interrupt, but I don't think the word just could ever go in front of what you've done or continue to do again. Oh, no. I don't think just in any way. <laughs> no, no, you're too kind. And, um, you know, when I do reflect on what I've done, it's like I've been very privileged. I'm very fortunate. I mean, on my last day in Botswana, I met the uh, the students and residents that were in the hospital at the time, and I gave them a great commission. I said, you need to reach that wonderful state in your medical career where you feel that you are learning more about yourself and taking more away from your patients than you're able ever to give them in terms of medical care. So, um, yeah, it's a two-way street. Uh, being a doctor and also understanding that you only can save yourself. And, you know, that's the title of my book, One Life at a Time. And that was the only way I could approach the, um, the AIDS epidemic there. When you, it's funny, I was going to ask you when your 
speaking with other students or teaching at the medical school, what is the biggest lesson or for you the most important lesson you leave them with? And I wonder, is it what you just mentioned? That it's sort of... Yeah, and also to understand that your patient is someone's beloved mother or sister or daughter or aunt. Yeah, you need to know medicine, and I would pound into their heads some central precepts and would always do that. But you need to understand that that this is a human being. You know, in the medical students that I see here in in, uh, New York, Yes, the the psychosocial aspects of medicine are very, very important, as are just knowing how to provide good care. And I might add, and this is not a criticism, it's just a a fact about many of the patients that I see here at the Ryan Center, their psychosocial problems are sometimes far worse than their significant medical problems as well, and each impacts the other. And with all that you've done, and I, again, I just, I don't even know where to begin to thank you and for what you're sharing with us and what you've done for so many people. But when you said you sort of learned something, your lesson to the students is to kind of learn about yourself. So we sort of, you know, you're, you're learning constantly. What would you say maybe the most important thing you learned about yourself was during all of this? And was it when you were in Botswana? Was it when you returned? That's a very good question, and um, I think I learned that I'm quite fallible. Uh, I'm myself hang by a thread. We all hang by a thread, and it could snap any time. And that um, you know, you just have to live one day at a time, if you if you will. yeah, I mean, uh, sooner or later, uh, we're all going to lose it. And, um, you know, my hope is that when my time comes, I will at least have the same equanimity and spirituality and calm acceptance that so many of my patients in Botswana had that I saw day in and day out. Dr. Baxter, I don't know where to begin. And first of all, we only have two minutes left, and I'm desperate because I don't want you to leave. I feel like I'm learning so much from this as all of our listeners. Um, but most importantly, we need to know what happens. So your book, One Life at a Time, An American Doctor's Memoir of AIDS in Botswana, where can we get <laughs> I need to get it right away, and everybody else does. Please tell us all where to get the book. Well, the usual suspects, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, I would not even be surprised if a few of the remaining bookstores uh, also have it. But those, uh, and they also describe the book in a little more detail. Uh, I will admit, I love the cover. When you see the cover, um, <laughs> that basically summarizes a lot of it. And um, also, it has the clouds in Botswana. The clouds were just amazing as well. So, yeah, just uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, Amazon, um, and, you know, I really appreciate your interest in the questions that you asked. Oh, and, and of course, and your other book also, the least of these are my brethren, A Doctor's Story of Hope of Miracles on an Inner City AIDS Ward. Is that also Amazon and Barnes & Noble? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> the, har- the hardcover has been pulped, but the paperback will live on forever. And should we read them in order, or...? <laughs> 
What is your suggestion? Because obviously we're all getting votes. You know, I frankly, uh, I don't think that it really makes any difference. The least of these, my brethren, discusses AIDS in America at a time when it was truly fearsome. It was the so-called new face of AIDS in the early 90s. It was originally thought that HIV predominantly affected the gay community, but no, it affected more the IV drug users, minorities, women, people of color, et cetera. So it really doesn't matter. Although, frankly, of the two, I think one life at a time is, um, I like it better than the least of these, although the least of these got good reviews as well. <laughs> well, I can't thank you enough. Our listeners can't thank you enough. It was an absolute honor to have you on tonight. And again, thank God there are people like you out there because that's why our kids, and future generations will be better people. So and thank you, thank you. Table, I will turn the tables and say thank God there are people like you out there. But thank you so much, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I hope you come back with us again. Anytime. And, thank you oh, so I'd much. Oh, I love it. I love it. Bye-bye. Thank you. And everyone out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Good night. If you're a veteran looking to file for your service-connected benefits through the Department of Veterans Affairs, don't go it alone. AMVET's highly trained service officers stand ready to walk you through the process at VA regional offices around the country, helping you to navigate the complex VA system free of charge. With new presumptions for Agent Orange exposure and other conditions, AMVETs can offer you the advice you need to finally receive all your earned benefits. In 2009 alone, AMVETs helped process more than 65,000 claims and appeals, securing more than four. $410 million in benefits. To find your nearest AMVETS service officer or to learn more, visit AMVETS.org. Sparky the Fox.